I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. A breast cancer diagnosis, of course, can be life-altering for anyone. For young women, it can be even more difficult, not only because of the time in life, finishing school, building careers, raising families, but also the biology. The cancer can be aggressive, and the chances for recurrence significant, which is only part of what makes Dr. Ann Partridge's work so important and remarkable. On the biology, among the areas she studies is the why. Why is the cancer so aggressive? But she also focuses on the how, how these young women will make their way through the challenges. Dr. Partridge is co-founder and director of the Young and Strong Program for Young Women with Breast Cancer, an extraordinary, unique offering that has guided more than 4,500 young women on their journeys through and beyond cancer, offering comprehensive care, support, and education tailored specifically for them. More on Dr. Partridge. She's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and serves as the director of the Adult Survivorship Program at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and Brigham and Women's Hospital. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2016. Before our conversation, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations, and if so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you for considering my request. That's it. Here's my conversation with Dr. Ann Partridge. Dr. Partridge, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. My pleasure, Chris. Breast cancer, of course, presents an incredible challenge and fear for any patient. Um, let's focus in on what you focus in on. What is different, maybe harder, but definitely different, about breast cancer in younger women? And for purposes of the conversation, I guess for purposes of your work, how should we define young? So that's a fantastic question to start off. And um, I, I completely agree with the first premise, which is, you know, a cancer diagnosis and breast cancer specifically uh, is, is a scary diagnosis. Um, it's scary for women or men of all ages, uh, but it is probably the most scary for our youngest patients, and that's with good reason. And when we think about young, we've seen in numerous data sets over the years, many studies, many populations, both in the United States and across the world, that when a young woman develops breast cancer, on average, she's more likely to die of it. I mean, that's just the stark reality, even in 2019, and that's not okay. That's not acceptable, right? We need to improve cancer care and breast cancer care specifically, which, of course, is the mission of the BCRF for women of all ages, and particularly for our most vulnerable, those who are at higher risk of hearing from it again and potentially succumbing to it. So that's the reality for young women, and that's why they'd be more scared. And young here can be defined at 40 or younger, which is where the data are most robust, the strongest data to support that there's a higher risk of hearing from breast cancer again and having to fight it again and potentially dying from it. So, so that's the stark reality of the age disparity. And the things that are different for young women, 
beyond a higher risk of recurrence on average, it's not true that every young woman's high risk, but on average, are that one, young women are more likely to get the more aggressive breast cancers. So when we think about the buckets of breast cancer, young women are more likely to get the higher grade HER2 positive or triple negative breast cancers. And those, the incidence, the, the likelihood of those occurring as women get older go down. And so they're more common in younger women. That's one. Two is young women typically aren't screened. In this country, we don't begin mammogram screening, which is our gold standard screening. And it's the best we've got for populations. It's not perfect, but we don't even begin doing that until women are in their thirties or forties. And so in young women, you're typically getting an unscreened cancer diagnosis, which means the tumors are bigger and they're more likely to be node positive. And part of that also has to do with the biology of the tumors they get, those higher risk tumors, right? So you've got this double whammy of being more likely to get more aggressive disease and more likely to have it be more advanced when it's detected for the youngest patients. That's, that's kind of the biology stuff. That's the disease stuff. Yeah. Yep. And then you add on to that, and this is where young women are really different because older women can get risky tumors and they can obviously be diagnosed with more advanced disease. But young women are diagnosed at a time in their lives when no one expects breast cancer, but women going in for mammography are getting screened for a cancer, right? Mm -hmm. So they're, they know that they're at risk for it. Young women are just busy living their lives, trying to start young families, trying to start careers, trying to get through school, and then wham, they can be hit with a breast cancer. And it's completely unexpected and completely non-normative. It's not something that their friends are facing. And, and then, of course, all the treatments and all the side effects, even if you don't need that much treatment, a young woman having hot flashes at the age of 30 compared to her peers who are out, you know, again, having young families, partying, whatever they're doing, making romance. This is not something that you have peers to support you for or that you remotely expected. And so this is another area where there is a disparate problem for young women. They're more likely to suffer, even if they're going to survive. And the vast majority will survive yep. their breast cancer, yep. thank goodness. You know, even though it's worse for young women, they still are most likely to survive and do well in the long run from a disease standpoint. They're more likely to suffer emotionally and socially because of the diagnosis of breast cancer. And that, that those hits occur with beauty, sexual health, fertility, emotional health, anxiety, fears, depression. These are all the things that young women are more likely to have to contend with. So all of those things come together and just make it just harder for a young woman to be diagnosed, treated, and then kind of thrive beyond the breast cancer. Yeah, it's quite an overwhelming set of factors. And, and a couple things jump out to me. One is, and this seems exactly consistent with what I take from your approach to to this challenge um it's an incredible combination of of the biology plus the emotional as we both stated at the top that's surely the case for everyone who suffers from this disease or or any disease right? when any of us you know gets uh something unexpected and something so potentially dire um, you know, that's, that's very shocking to say the least. And, and there's that combination of biology, um, plus emotion, but, but you're describing, um, the unique 
components of it for um, you know this segment of of the population. Um, and and so I, I want to talk to you about that. I, a couple of questions to clear to to make sure I'm understanding on the biology portion, so that we can level set there. What's the why behind it being, um, on average, a more aggressive form of breast cancer? So I'm getting the fact that um, young women and won't have mammographies necessarily um, in practice, um, and so I get the fact that because of that, when they're noticing breast cancer, when that's coming up, it, it might then be at a later stage and a more advanced stage, et cetera, et cetera. But why a more aggressive form? Why, why does that go more towards this audience than, um, than not? So that, that is the million dollar question. And, mm. um, to be honest, we're not a hundred percent sure. That's what a lot of our researchers are working on, including myself. Yeah. Um, that being said, some things we do know that point in the direction of why one is that young women are more likely to have a hereditary predisposition to their breast cancer they're more likely to have a BRCA1 or 2 mutation or some of the newer genes that we now know predict breast cancer risk uh, and the development of a cancer. And those genes are associated with developing more aggressive breast cancers. So for example, BRCA1 mutation carriers, it's more prevalent. It's a hallmark of having a mutation is early onset breast cancer or young age they're more likely to have triple negative breast cancer, which is you know, one of our more aggressive subtypes. Young women or people with P53 mutations, which is fortunately rare, are more likely to have HER2 positive breast cancer, which is you know, more aggressive. The good news is we have really good and effective treatment for yeah, it these yeah. days, um, but they're more likely, you know, those tumors tend to be larger, node positive, and require kind of a kitchen sink approach uh, on average. So is treatment. It, and it, so I'm sorry, some go of ahead. It's yep. the genetics. Yeah, that's okay. Some of it's the genetics. And then, um, you know, the rest, we're trying to work that out. And there's some really interesting kind of early data suggesting that there may be some kind of deeper genomic changes in the tumors that arise in young women. And that there may actually be some, you know, uh, evidence that women who are immediately postpartum, meaning having mm. recently had a baby, yeah. that the biology of the cells as the breast changes back to a not postpartum state mm. may increase the likelihood in that short term of a more aggressive biology of cancer. Mm. There's some data suggesting that. Uh, certainly not ready for prime time to think about with patients yet, um, but we're, we're trying to figure that out. Two questions then off of uh, what you're saying. One, on the genetic factor and that component, is it is it proper of me to believe that women who have a genetic predisposition, whose mothers, older siblings, older sisters, aunts, etc., grandmothers, um, you know, that that they would be more likely to potentially get um, uh, mammograms at an earlier age. And so therefore, when you talk about, which I would assume to be the case that, um, you know, many women don't get them at an early age, we don't give them until 30 is, are you talking about a subset who don't have a genetic predisposition or is it even the case that with a genetic predisposition, too many women may be in a situation where they're not getting mammographies at an early enough point? That was one question I'll ask the uh, other one. Yes, you're, so that's, 
it's a, it's, so yes, there, there are too many women who have family history who aren't getting, um, having this discussed, who aren't mm. getting tested and who aren't getting any screening, um, even when they have a hereditary predisposition and you could be tested and be found positive. Um, and in the general population, just to clarify, the current guidelines for screening range, depending on which group you're looking at, whether it's the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force or the American Cancer Society, range from starting at 45 to starting at 50. So, so your average person in the population, a proportion of whom will have an unknown hereditary predisposition to breast cancer, they're not even being recommended to get screening until they're you know, beyond the young age of breast cancer. That's one. Two is even when we know someone has a hereditary predisposition and we do start screening, you know, the recommendation is 10 years before the earliest onset of breast cancer. So if a woman with a BRCA1 mutation had a mother who had breast cancer or a father's sister who had breast cancer in her 30s, let's say we start screening at 25 and we do mammograms alternating with MRIs, which is what we recommend generally if she tests positive, even in that setting, A, our imaging isn't perfect. Mm. Mammograms are not great in younger women because the breast tissue is more dense. Mm. MRIs are more sensitive, but they're still not perfect. And then the other thing to remember is that screening is not prevention. And so screening might pick it up earlier, yes, but it's still going to be a cancer. You're seeing right? it there. And that so, is such, a, such an important point. Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. And so that's where we offer women prevention, which is a heavy load too if they're high, very high risk. Um, but that's a really hard thing also to offer a young woman when she's, again, in this kind of developmental life stage where yep. the idea of taking breasts off or taking out ovaries uh, when you haven't had your babies yet, especially for many of these young women, many, especially in our society, many women are waiting for lots of good reasons. Yeah. Um, that's a pretty challenging situation. Yeah, well. that is not part of the narrative or the expected narrative or the desired narrative for uh, for anybody, uh, no no doubt, right. particularly right. at that age. I mean, the good news, and the good news is we have lots of supports for these patients. Yeah. For these women who are we call pre-vivors who are at risk. We've got lots of lots of work going on to try and support them to make the best decisions for themselves, whether it be prevention or monitoring, uh, and aim for early detection if they're ultimately going to get a cancer. Uh, and then, of course, once women develop the disease, if they're if they're destined to, uh, you know, to get them through and beyond. So I don't want to be all gloom and doom here. Yep. It's just it's a tougher it's a tougher fight, and you need more to support our younger patients. And I want to ask you about some of those efforts, of course. I mean, particularly your, your programs, the uh, Young and Strong program for young women with breast cancer. Which, by the way, that's just great branding, um, Young and Strong. Thank you. <laughs> and and the came adult- up with by one of my patients, by the way. Wow, my okay. came up with that. Y- yep. I, I hear that. So you do get so many uh, scientists, researchers, doctors, um, caregivers do get great feedback and insights from uh, their patients. I I've, have heard that. So that's, uh, um, that's terrific. And I'm sure you shared, you know, all of the uh, royalties off of merchandise and all the, the selling of stuff. That you, <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only. Yeah, I know. I, I know. <laughs> that part we have, we need some help with. Yeah, I understand. And, and I'm, I'm teasing. Of course. Thank you, BCRF, given <laughs> our lack of ability to get our own royalties in the world. <laughs> biomedical I, folks, so uh, yeah, in, the, they, in the clinical side. Yeah. <laughs> we, that we, you know, that's not what we're looking to you for. We're looking to you for the, uh, to the, for the science and, and the research. So I want to ask you about that. I want to ask you about the adult survivor 
mentorship program. I, I, I had just one other question about the biology that you were talking about, and that was the postpartum situation and the way the tissue, the cells change as the the breast returns or you, you said it differently, but, but the, that, you know, afterwards and, and the, 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 the changes that go on, is that aligned with genetics, with family history, or is what you're describing there, that's kind of irrespective to family history. And therefore that's a period to kind of be aware of, um, separate from the family history question. So, um, that's a fantastic question. And the answer is probably, right? If you're higher risk than any perturbation, any change that promotes a cancer is probably going to be more likely to promote it in a person who's higher risk because mm. of genetic instability yeah. or inability to repair genes, which is the problem with genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations. Um, but that has not been specifically looked at yet that I'm aware of. So these two kinds of, you know, different kinds of research have been looked at independently. And therefore, the evolving data that mammary changes after a pregnancy, which is called involution, technically, mm -hmm. that there's a lot going on in the breast and that there's an influx of immune cells and um, what we call immune sig signature clustering. Uh, that might predispose the, the, the breast cells in there to be more likely to turn into a cancer. Hmm. And that probably is happening, if it's happening, uh, both in a person who's not high risk, but it's most likely, if it's happening in people who are not high risk, it would happen probably even more in women who are high risk. Does that make sense? And there's some epidemiologic data that this may be true, but in women who are very high risk, it may not matter whether they've had a pregnancy or not. Whereas it might be more likely to push someone towards a cancer should they have had a more recent pregnancy if they're not high risk. If you're following me, I, I am following you, and uh, you know, I, I, you know, now I know you're looking. You've got nothing to do. You have no studies going on, no research, no programs that you're running. Mm -hmm. So, so there you go. There, there's another thing. Uh, potentially to look at. Um, it, tell me, let, let's uh, let's turn and, and tell me about Young and Strong. Tell me about the Young and Strong program for young women with breast cancer. Um, what is it? How did you create it? And uh, you know, with others, I, I am assuming. Um, and and what what does it provide? Uh, yeah. So. So yes, it's a team effort, and um, any of the research I'm talking about, whether I've been a part of it or it's been uh, from the larger uh, cancer research community. It's, it's all a team effort. Yeah. There's, there's no, uh, there's no, you know, there are competitors, but the fact is that we all have to work together to figure this out. And from a clinical standpoint, you know, while I love the research, there's a lot that we already know that I realized early on, patients were coming to me for a second opinion, or they were seeing a colleague um, who was maybe newer or wasn't focusing on young women, and they weren't hearing about things like fertility or they'd come from a second opinion and they wouldn't have had genetic testing yet. And they were 35 years old and it might have impacted on their treatment decisions. Mm -hmm. And they certainly weren't getting across the board more comprehensive kind of survivorship and supportive care once they were kind of through the immediate treatment um, trenches. And so 
in uh, 2005 at the Dana-Farber with support of um, patients and philanthropic funds and colleagues, we established this program for young women with breast cancer, which we rebranded to be Young and Strong. Mm -hmm. Uh, And again, coming from the patients saying, look, you know, and and patients have also said, you know, you don't have to be strong. And I say back to them, that's right, but we're going to be here and be strong to help and support you in case you're not strong. We got your backs. Hmm. And um, so we created this community, basically, um, and we've served over 5,000 new young patients directly in our clinic and scores of women beyond that, I'm sure. Uh, And we've been working for now over a decade to try to not only push the field forward in terms of research, but to help disseminate best practices and best supportive care and best, you know, make sure you talk to the young woman about fertility before she starts her treatment. So if she wanted to do anything to preserve her fertility, make sure you plug her in with the psychosocial supports with a social worker or with resources in her community all along the way, because each step of the way has different stressors. Mm. Make sure that you think about the aftermath for this young woman, not just, you know, when you're talking about the risks of chemo before you have them sign the consent, but later when she's still feeling tired six months after she's finished all her treatment or when she's feeling down or when she's having hot flashes or when she doesn't know it, but her bones may be thinning and you've got to think about her bone health in the long haul because she needs to have those bones for another you know, five or six decades. And so this is the kind of comprehensive approach we try to follow. And as you alluded to um, earlier, this is something that affects not just the patient, but the patient's whole system. So we got to think about her loved ones, her partner if for young women, if she has a partner or her ability to partner or her children. Yeah. And so trying to kind of have a comprehensive approach to kind of total patient care and getting women to not only live through a cancer, which of course is super important, but kind of thrive through and beyond a cancer diagnosis and treatment. And that's where the challenge is. But, you know, we're up for it. And this program, I think, has really helped more young women to, 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 to cope to find community and support and resources and better care. And we've tried really hard to disseminate our best practices, you know, beyond the hallowed halls of Dana-Farber and to get to not just our affiliates and satellites, but to share resources with colleagues across the country. And and it's super cool because we've actually developed this really nice um, collaboration with folks across the world. Mm. And now every two years we meet in, right now we meet in Lugano, Switzerland, and we develop guidelines for young women. And this is in conjunction with the European School of Oncology, mm. uh, which is based uh, based in Europe, obviously. And we develop guidelines for best practices. And in, you know, how, do you dis- how do you distill the latest research to apply to our youngest patients? Because sometimes people don't know whether it should apply to the young patients. And so we uh, uh, sit there, a group of experts and patients and advocates sit and think about it in the context of our youngest patients. And then we publish it so it's available for other providers and researchers and patients uh, to learn from and potentially impact on their care. Yeah, I, I think so that's, that's a, it, it, it is exciting. And it's a really important point, I think, for any 
listeners or anyone really to know about. In, in my own learning about your efforts uh, to prepare for this conversation, um, I, I saw, I mean, that you've put together, you, and by you, I mean the, the royal you, you and colleagues, uh, <laughs> et cetera, um, have put together um, videos, slideshows, um, speeches, presentations, data, um, guidelines, um, and more. And, you know, I just think that that's, you know, I'm sure for you as well, um, you know, that's imperative for, for folks to know about. And it, it said to me as well that, um, you know, among the many ways I'm interpreting you seeing your role, you are a researcher, um, you're a scientist, you're a doctor, um, you, you know, you're worried and focused on the biology, you're, you're worried and focused on the emotional, mental, psychological components. Um, but you're also a communicator and, and that the communications on this is, uh, um, it feels like is part of, uh, how you see your role. For any researcher, if you, you know, tree falls in the forest and no one hears it. Mm. And so we, we do need to be able to not just share our results, uh, but there's a whole school of how do you disseminate, disseminate the findings and help to implement changes in care. And even with a hot new drug, mm. right, where you have a whole, usually a pharmaceutical industry pushing the drug and sales forces doing that, it can take three years for drugs to get disseminated to, you know, the majority of people. Now try and think about like supportive care approaches. Yeah. It's just so much harder. And so we, you know, people who are working on this, need to remove the barriers and make it accessible because we don't have sales forces. Yep. And so we need to make it kind of a priority in that, you know, you, and, and most providers want to treat their patients better. And so, you know, getting out there, shouting it from the hilltops, developing resources that are good for the providers and good for the patients and accessible. That's what we've tried to focus on. And, you know, personally, you know, I've been very grateful because, um, Groups like the BCRF recognize that mm. and they support my work. That's not drug development in this context. It's improving survivorship care for young breast cancer patients and developing an intervention right now that is web based. So phone, web, laptop, tablet, patients can log on from yep. home. All the ways we connect yep, and, and can log on and get support in the middle of the night. That's what we're trying to do. Mm. And their providers can refer them to that, which helps the provider because then they're not calling the patient, you know, excuse me, then the patient's not calling them yeah. in the middle of the night or suffering more importantly for six months until their next follow-up visit yeah. in survivorship, which is more likely to happen. Cause you know, a patient's not going to page their doctor in the middle of the night for a hot flash. Yeah. But if there's a remedy for that, that they could access from a trusted source, wouldn't that be wonderful? And yeah. so that's what we're kind of working on. And, and to be clear, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but but then I, I, I need to ask you about the research and, and two of the studies that you're working on right now. Um, I, I'm, that's the Young and Strong program as well as the Adult Survivorship Program. My takeaway was that those are unique programs, but there seem to be deep connection and maybe even some overlap, but, but that they are they are separate programs. Did I interpret that right? Or are they kind of closely, more closely aligned than that? Yeah. So at Dana-Farber, we have these two unique and separate programs, the mm -hmm. program for young women or young and strong and the adult survivorship program. Uh, and they are separate, but they at Dana-Farber are unified because I am the director of both of them. <laughs> got it. Got it. <laughs> and, okay. And so, so, but the, the goal of the adult survivorship program is to help to support 
survivors across the cancer spectrum, right? Okay. Okay. But there's a lot of overlap because, you know, survivorship begins a diagnosis and things like uncle fertility Hmm. and fertility preservation for adult, young adult and adolescent cancer survivors is an issue, for example, that's not unique to breast cancer survivors. It's something that's appropriate for all young cancer survivors, you know, from the data diagnosis. And so, so there is a fair bit of overlap. And so I started to run adult survivorship after some of the successes of our young women's program and the ability to kind of scale up has been a bit of a challenge. You know, how do I help the young testicular survivors, things like that. So we work on that and it's a much different scope and a larger team and very multidisciplinary, even beyond, you know, the breast cancer trenches, because Uh, you have to think about all of the other diseases for that. But there's a lot of overlap. And I think, um, you know, the young, the young and strong program has helped to provide um, some uh, experience uh, for how to better deliver care and how to better disseminate findings and things that we already know uh, within a large cancer center and then beyond. Uh, to to people who are not coming into a comprehensive cancer center like ours. Got it. Uh, so there's synergies. Uh, understood. And yes, I, I uh, understand how the adult survivorship uh, it, it sounds like covers a range of cancers. And uh, that's a whole separate conversation. I um, have gotten so much from talking to scientists and researchers about um, how much gets learned um, in one area of cancer research or care, and then gets, you know, g- goes into an experiment or a study to try to apply it in, in other areas. Right. And it helps that, you know, I'm all against, as I'm sure you guys are, we're against silos, right? Yep. And it's easy to have a silo when you're busy and you're focused. And so um, one of the things that we work on really hard is not siloizing the research from the clinical care, right? These things have to be kind of iterative and go back and forth, right? From bench to bedside to population. Mm. And then on top of that, I don't want to siloize breast cancer in either direction. So you know, yes, we've separated cancer now in order to make breakthroughs, but what we learn in breast cancer, we can now sometimes move to lung and colon and testicular and other cancers and vice versa, right? Yep. And so that's true from a biomedical standpoint, and it's also true from the supportive care standpoint. So it's important that I um, get to ask you about and get to learn about um, your research. Uh, you are launching um, two parallel studies that um, will build on prior research to improve the understanding of the complex medical and emotional problems that we've been talking about, the ones that face young women with, with breast cancer, um, with a new focus, um, as I understand it, on intervention and outreach. Um, one of them is the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study 2, and the other one, uh, I believe, is titled the Young Women's Breast Cancer Study 2 Internet. Um, Tell me about each of them, please. Sure. So, um, and that has evolved. So I will say, just to clarify, um, we've kind of put them together now. Ah, And we've just completed a pilot where we have developed a web-based portal, as I alluded to earlier, that is designed to help women both report symptoms and problems and informational needs And in the moment that they trigger and report a problem or an informational need, they are actually sent to their portal information or um, support for how to manage that need or that concern or that symptom. So it's kind of real-time, iterative, supportive care. Again, you can sit on your couch at midnight and answer the survey that asks 
do you have hot flashes or are you worried about your sexual health or you're worried about your, you know, pain or fatigue? And if you say, you know, more than no, if you say a little or a lot in different degrees, you will get information about how to manage that particular symptom that comes to you. And if you don't say anything, if you say, I'm totally fine, you'll just get some, you know, supportive care things, you know, generally about what to think about and what to, you know, how to optimize your health behaviors and things like that. So you get something no matter what. And plus we're pulling people to come together as a form of community within the portal. So it's a way for other young women to connect with other young women as well as our team. And, um, and they can also do journaling because we know from other data that, that can help young women to process and emotionally deal mm. with a breast cancer diagnosis and survivorship. So we just finished a pilot of the portal that the women can also track their symptoms over time and see if they're improving. Uh, they can also, um, again, as I said, communicate with one another. And so we just finished this pilot and it was very, very successful. Women were very engaged. Uh, we accrued women who had newly diagnosed breast cancer, age 45 and younger for this one because it's supportive care, um, and women who are survivors, meaning out of initial disease treatment uh, and kind of moving beyond, and then another group of women living with advanced breast cancer, mm. living with metastatic disease. Um, and we got feedback from these women. So not only did they respond to the surveys, but they also told us what they thought. We were interviewing. We're almost done with the interviews and we're interviewing them now and we're learning about the pros and the cons and that, you know, was it too much or was it too little and how, what would help you engage more. And this is the kind of research that you have to be very patient with because mm -hmm. you want to hear all the criticisms, right? You want them to tell you what they liked and what they didn't and have them be honest uh, because you ultimately want a product that they're going to engage with. Of and so we are in the process of revising the portal right now based on that feedback uh, and then our next step is to launch three different initiatives, one for each of those groups mm. that will use this web-based platform that will now be tweaked for each of those groups. For example, you know, in the survivors, the top symptoms weren't nausea or vomiting. They were anxiety, hot flashes, sexual health, right? Mm. And so we're not going to ask them about nausea and vomiting very often, right? Because they don't need that information. They're too far out. And so, and then the metastatic patients, that, that actually was true too. So we're going to, we're tweaking things, but we didn't know that until we surveyed them and found out that, you know, nobody's really interested in this and people are more interested in that. And we also found out interestingly in the feedback, a high proportion of people were, when we talk about survivorship, we think a lot about the kind of system issues and the patient direct issues. And one of the things that we hadn't thought about, which I'm embarrassed to say because now it's like common sense, is they wanted more information and support about the financial toxicity. Mm. Right? Makes sense. Yeah. Of course it makes yeah. sense. And yet I hadn't thought of it. It wasn't in there as a, you know, they didn't trigger that because we didn't ask them, tell us, you know, we didn't ask them. We asked them, tell us what else you'd like to see in an open forum, which yeah. is one of the things they told us both then and in the interviews. So it's pretty cool, right? This is why we pilot this, because you've got to learn from your patients what you need to deliver better and what more. So now we're working on adding that as well and you know, plugging in resources, which is, which is hard, but they're out there. And some of this is about connecting patients with resources. Yeah. Incredible how any of us, but, but in this particular case, people like you and, and colleagues who 
do this, have done this every day for years, talk to patients every day for years, and yet still can learn new insights and gather new data and um, then refine uh, your activities or, or opportunities for patients to, you know, more customize it, make it more relevant and, and make everything just more directly useful. And the, uh, the continual learning that, uh, that can occur really in just about any area in life, um, is always, uh, is always fascinating. And, uh, I'm sure that's one of your takeaways as well. I, I, I've got to understand and, and in listening to you, how did you get into this? And I, I mean, going back way back where did you grow up for you was it always science or you know was it always research or you know were you you know just on the verge of becoming a world-class um, olympic athlete and at the last minute you just said no, I'm, I'm not going to do that i'm going to do science instead um so i was always going to be a doctor in fact i tried to talk myself out of it because my my wonderful father uh, is a physician. Mm. Uh, he's now retired. And uh, I, so that was kind of in my blood um, for lots of reasons. And, um, and yet, you know, I, I kind of fell into breast cancer, to be very honest, mm. uh, not because I necessarily needed to do breast cancer, but because I found a mentor that uh, was a breast cancer rock star, Eric Weiner, mm. uh, when I was a fellow. And, um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to, you know, attach my wagon to his star in terms of just, I wanted to be like him. And, uh, that's the, that's the idea of a mentor. So, um, and I was happy to do breast cancer because I was interested in women's health and I liked the long-term relationships. And I also liked the evolving science that I was seeing in the, in the early fellowship oncology trenches. Uh, so that's how I initially started with breast cancer. And, um, I grew up on Long Island, by the way, I'm a New Yorker by birth. Hmm. Uh, but, but then I came up to Boston for a man. Um, but that being said, I, I, and for my Dana Farber fellowship, of course, so it was of course, one, but, of course. But um, really, it was about my now husband. Uh, so, so fast forward though, I'm in the oncology trenches. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up in oncology. I start working with Eric Weiner, and two things happened. One is that in the clinic, because I'm, you know, I'm a clinical doc. I'm not a test tube researcher. Mm-hmm. I started seeing in the clinics what I described to you earlier in this, the, the suffering of the youngest women. Mm. I started seeing, they were just pulling on everybody's heartstrings and I felt like, you know, we could do more for them. So, and we could learn more for them. And when they'd ask questions about, you know, how likely am I going to, to go through menopause with this chemotherapy? We didn't have enough answers. Mm. And so that's where I, you know, found my niche clinically and thought, Hey, you know, this is an unanswered area. I could dive right in here because it's both fascinating to me and I could do good uh, and there's room. And so, you know, for me, that was kind of what hooked me. And then I will tell you, um, when I was about 29 and my best friend was 30, I got a call from her, my best friend from high school. Mm. She had a lump. She was in New York, actually. And fast forward, it ends up being breast cancer. Mm. And fortunately, her survival was actually not the thing we were worried about. But I heard from her from the inside, from, you know, she shared with me things you don't share with your doctor typically, but what you share with your best friend, which is, how do I deal with one breast and mm-hmm. the shirt I want to wear on Friday night? Yeah. yeah. I have this new partner, and how do I deal with, like, that from an intimacy standpoint? Can I have a baby, or is that not going to be safe? And, 
then we weren't sure whether it was safe. Now we're pretty sure that it is probably safe to have a baby after breast cancer based on the available evidence. But at that time, we didn't have enough data to even answer those questions or enough resources to answer kind of the beauty and self-image stuff. And I heard from her, you know, kind of firsthand how hard it was, even when it wasn't about surviving the cancer. It was really about kind of moving on. And so for me personally, that made me even that much more interested in the supportive care stuff, the softer stuff that the doctors and even the nurses, quite frankly, don't pay that much attention to and yet are so important for the day-to-day for our patients that we kind of should help them with this. And so we've tried to build ways to help them better, you know, in partnership with other groups, with, you know, advocacy groups and with beauty groups and with, you know, all kinds of good partnerships where we all want the same thing. We want people to look and feel good, right? Yep. And, um, and so that's kind of been an area that, you know, that's where it came out of. That's where, you know, for me, it was, okay, this is a good fit for me, my personality and my mission. And that's how I'm here. Uh, that's an incredible series of inputs and, and both the personal and the professional. Yes. I mean, those conversations with your girlfriend, um, as well, I can say I had the great privilege of um, doing one of these conversations with Dr. Weiner, and so I <laughs> get it. If uh, you were fortunate, you met the rock star, I, I got to talk to the rock star. Yes, I, I <laughs> you know, and so yes, I get it. If you had the opportunity, if one had the opportunity to work with him, I can see how that could, um, you know, how that could be life changing and and could really um, help direct a career. Which I am willing to bet you have either passed forward and passed on or will. But I, my guess is you likely already have to many folks. So thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time with me today. Oh, it was a treat. Thank you. That was my conversation with Dr. Partridge. My thanks to Dr. Partridge for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts.